Well, good morning. How are you doing this morning? Good, good to see you. Welcome to Life Community and welcome to those of you in our church family that are joining us online here today. And um, just want to say real quick before we dive in and get going, um, thank you. Uh, we had some people come out last night uh, to Saturday. And as we continue to grow and this place continues to fill up, uh, especially moving into the fall, uh, one thing we're asking some of you is if this is your home church, maybe you've been coming for a while, uh, why don't you try Saturday? We'd love to have you come and try Saturday night and uh, see if it's a good fit for you. You won't get in trouble if we see you Sundays. You know, that's, that's great as well. We, don't, we, we love you and we're glad you're here whenever you come. Uh, but it would be really helpful in kind of balancing the two services if some of you would give Saturday a shot. And if you're uh, joining us here for the first time, uh, we just finished a series preaching through the book of Esther all summer. Last week, we took a break, and I addressed a hot uh, button, a couple hot button topics, and we talked about division in, in believers and kind of a hot topic issue right now, something that was really on my heart and I felt compelled to speak into, and, and that was freedom of conscience when it comes to some of uh, the mandates and things we're seeing rolling out around the country. And I also talked about how um, we don't often talk about hot button topics here. And there's a reason for that. And one of the reasons for that is because it often is a distraction from the gospel. And um, well, and it's divisive a lot of times too. And so we don't spend a lot of time addressing hot-button topics. Occasionally, when I feel led, we'll speak into some things. However, um, in this season, uh, I've, been felt, I've felt led to uh, start a blog that can kind of intersect with some of these cultural issues, and um, some of that will be how the gospel intersects and how the teachings of Scripture intersect, and some of it will just be my ramblings and random thoughts and whatever. Okay. So if you're interested in following that, uh, and you would like to be on that and you were, weren't here last week, cause we know, uh, we usually only see about probably 50 to 60% of you on any given weekend. If you missed last week and you want to get that, just write Tim's list on the blue card next year or online, just hit the contact us form and write Tim's list and we'll get you on that. So you can kind of follow some of my personal thoughts and uh, things as it comes to speaking into culture. Okay. Hey, uh, in a few weeks, uh, in the beginning of September, we are launching a new series in the book of John, and I'm really excited about it. I'm excited about it because it is, uh, I think, one of the most incredible um, passages of scripture uh, books, it just when it comes to understanding Jesus and understanding our faith. But for the next three weeks, I wanted to take a moment to talk about something that I think will relate to all of us in one way or another. And so if you're just joining us, we're, we are starting a short series, three to four weeks, that we're calling Family, Friends, and Enemies. Families sometimes are friends and sometimes are, are enemies, aren't they? Uh, we all kind of understand this family dynamic. And so today we're going to move very quickly. We're going to take about 15 minutes and kind of set up the context for the whole series. And then we're going to talk about a question that I think is a powerful question to ask if you want happy, fulfilling relationships in your life. And when it comes to the subject of family, you know, there are so many different situations that we find ourselves in. And some things we all have in common is that we don't choose our family, do, do we? 
You've heard the saying, you can pick your friends, you can't pick your family. And some of you have been painfully reminded of that at some holidays, right? In fact, if you're a teenager, I bet uh, you in the room, or if you remember being a teenager, and if you are a teenager, don't, don't like sh- nod or anything because you'll hurt your parents' feelings. But I bet when you were a teenager, some of you wished you had you were, you were in your friend's family, right? Because they were just that much cooler. They got to stay up later, eat cereal at midnight. I don't know. Play the video games all day long. And I see the teenagers are, are you know, smiling, but they're being good, so that's good. But yeah, you don't get to pick your family, right? You're just, you land in the family, you're in, don't you? The other thing that I think we can all agree about family is that family is messy. And I bet a lot of you have had those family gatherings, maybe a Thanksgiving dinner, where you just look around and you're like, I can't believe these people. And you think like, if I had my way, I could fix them all. You know, like Cousin Joe, you need a haircut and a shower, man, right? Brother Larry, you need to turn off the Xbox and get a job. You're 45. Sister-in-law, well, I can fix that just by going, shh. (laughs) Or maybe parenting, right? Parenting's messy. And after I had kids, I found it kind of amusing and convicting to think, of how much I thought I knew about parenting before I had kids. Anybody else? I I was the guy, and and I know maybe you're better than me, but, you know, you'd go in the supermarket and you'd see that toddler throwing a fit, and you're like, why can't they control their child? And then I had kids. And now I understand why, right? In fact, I remember my kids are bigger now, but when they were little and we'd, we'd take them on these long flights and it's, it's like um, you just walk on and start apologizing to everyone. You know, within six rows, you're like, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. Here's some money for the mini bar. You might need that. I'm so sorry. Because my, uh, my kid would do this thing. I don't know if any of yours did. When they're really little, you know, they're not rational. You can't exactly like have a rational you know, logical discussion with them about why you shouldn't create noise or uh, ruckus on the flight, right? And so we'd sit down on the flight and my kid would just start kicking the chair in front of him. And then you'd try to say, stop, 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 right? Or try to physically restrain him. And then he starts screaming. (laughs) And so you're just like, I'm so sorry. Take your pick. You know, which one do you want? Screaming, kicking. I'm doing everything I can here, right? But it's messy, isn't it? You know, and the truth is, family is a challenging topic to teach about. Because we come from so many different starting places. There's so many different family dynamics, right? Uh, For many, family is, is the hardest, but also the most rewarding part of life. And when it comes to terms like father, mother, son, daughter, they carry some emotional baggage, don't they? Either in a good way for some or in a very negative way for others. And when you teach about family, actually, it's interesting because when you look at the scriptures, especially the Old Testament, uh, we don't have a lot of good examples. You know, you think about the, f- the first family. It was a train wreck, right? I mean, it all begins. The whole, the whole mess got started off and, and, and the tension and strife w- with the fall, right? Where Adam took the fruit and ate 
instead of following God in, in the morning. And John Eldridge, a famous author, um, here's what he wrote about that situation. He said, man chose women or woman over God in the garden, and man has been choosing women over God ever since. And you have the first homicide in history in the first family. Cain kills his brother Abel. <laughs> Great job getting started with the human race, right? You have Abraham even um, lying about his wife being his sister in order to, to you know, save his neck. Um, Jacob, he showed f- such favoritism to Joseph, and it was so bad that his brothers hated him to the extent that they sold him into slavery. Now, some of you feel like I come up from a dysfunctional family, but I don't think you're in that situation, right? Um, David and his son had such a falling out because of David's tragic decisions that um, it caused a civil war in Israel and thousands died. Even in the New Testament, um, there's, not a, there's a few really good examples, and one of my favorite is um, my namesake, Timothy, his mother, Lois, and his grandmother, and this awesome, and you get the, the uh, feeling that it might have been like a single parent uh, believer discipling him, and, and, and that's a great one, right? But you've got some others that you know, are kind of so-so, right? I mean, even Jesus' parents forgot him for three days. How do you do that? And some of you are like, let me tell you how you do that, right? There was this one time in Utah at the rest stop. Okay, but it didn't take you three days to figure it out, did it? Did it? So, you know, when it comes to Scripture, there's just not a lot to go on as far as good examples. But then something amazing happened, and it revolutionized the way that family worked in the culture of the day. And the apostles, they took the teachings of Jesus, and they began to apply them and contextualize them to family relationships. And last week, we talked about um, this commandment to followers of Jesus, a new commandment that I give you to love one another, that this would be the identifying marker, the badge that would identify you as a follower of, of Jesus. And so the apostles took this teaching from Jesus and started to imagine what it would look like for that to be lived out in the context of family and under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, they began to write some very clear instructions for how we should relate to each other. And so as we begin to address this topic here today, um, I'm I'm just going to start by reading most of the passages, a, a summary of the passages in the New Testament that talk about the New Testament teaching on family. And so we're just going to read through them real quick. Here we go. Ephesians 6.1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. This is the one all the adults in the room like, right? For this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise. And if you're with us in Exodus, you know what that promise was, right? That you would live long in the land, that it would go well for you. So children, you obey your parents when it comes to relationships with your parents. Ephesians 5, each one of you uh, must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. And so we're introduced, Paul introduces us to this concept of love and respect. And this is a fantastic, amazing, there's actually a whole series, um, uh, teaching uh, series on love and respect when it comes to marriage, a whole ministry based on that, and and it's a, a very dynamic ministry. Love and respect, the greatest needs of the heart of men and, and women. 
Colossians 3.18. Wives, now this one we don't like as much. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, doesn't stop there. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Now, why would he write that? Because in a first century context, in a Greek or Jewish or Roman home, uh, basically women were, were little more than property. They had very low status. They had just a little bit of a higher status in society than a slave. And children actually were basically treated like property. And so in this, into this kind of culture where men were very dominant, I mean, this was a completely male-dominated society. And into this kind of culture, he speaks and he says, hey, when it comes to how you're going to relate to your wife, I'm going to flip the cultural norm on its head. You, don't, you love your wife and, and do not be harsh with them. And fathers, and when it comes to your kids, and you know, a lot of times, I mean, kids were, were in, in this kind of society, um, sometimes the little girls often were, it was called exposing, they would just leave them out to die many times. Um, kids were treated as property. So many of them died in, in, at, at childhood. There was such a high rate of infant mortality that they often didn't name their kids even until they were older. Fathers, he says, do not embitter, or some of your translations maybe that you grew up with would have said exasperate your children. Don't put a, the idea is don't put a heavy burden, a heavy weight on them or they will become discouraged. And so he talks about this concept that, especially for fathers, your, weight, your words carry a very heavy weight. Many times more than mom's words, right? You might say the same thing, but the weight of it when it comes from dad is, is a very different thing. And so he, he tells fathers, don't exasperate, don't embitter your children. Because this is hard for guys, right? Oftentimes. My wife reminds me of this scripture frequently. I'm glad she does. And so here, to recap, kind of, that's basically, and there's some others, but that's basically a summary of the teaching when it comes to interpersonal relationships, specifically for families in, in the New Testament. And so just to recap that, here's, here's what that is. Husbands, love your wives, be considerate. Wives, respect and submit to your husbands. Children, obey and honor your parents. Fathers, don't aggravate, don't, don't um, aggravate your children, right? And when you see a list like this, I'm guessing there may be a couple of things that you're thinking here. One of them, especially if you're a young person in the room, um, is this like, yeah, I've heard that. That seems kind of outdated, old-fashioned, in fact, kind of patriarchal. I, I don't even, you know, quite know what to think about this. Here, here's what you need to understand. And this is so important to understand that, that when you hear these things and maybe they sound a little old fashioned to us, they sounded futuristic um, in an incredible way, very unrealistic to a first century audience. In this audience, to a Greek and Roman culture, these things actually, when it came to the dynamic of how you treat family and, and the kind of relationships that were called to have modeling the love of Jesus, it actually would have sounded totally countercultural, totally insane. 
specifically the dignity given to women and children in, in the culture. This was something Jesus clearly modeled when, when his disciples shoot away the kids and he went, no, 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 you let the little children come to me. They are valuable. They are first in the kingdom of God. In fact, if you want to get into the kingdom of God, you're going to have to embrace it like one of these kids. And so he flips the narrative on its head at the time. And now it's just, we've been so steeped in the teachings of Jesus, they've had such an impact on Western culture that we can't imagine a culture where women don't have equal status with men or where children would be thrown away because they were an inconvenience or where baby girls didn't share the dignity that baby boys did. And here's what you see in cultures that drift away from um, a Judeo-Christian worldview. From the principles of scripture, you see that, that typically in these kinds of cultures, the ones who always suffer first are women and children. And I think we're seeing this played out in our culture today in the tragedy of so many whose lives are being snuffed out before birth. In many other ways. So you might think, like, this sounds old-fashioned, outdated. The second thing you might think when you look at a list like this is, wow, that seems unattainable. I mean, that, that kind of dynamic sounds, when, when you think of the context of my family, it, it seems kind of unattainable. It seems like, you know, maybe how things should be, but um, I don't know. To pull off a family, to do family like that, you don't understand my family. And this kind of brings us to a dilemma, which, which I think is important to understand in church. And that's this, that when it comes to family, there, there's always a real tension between reality and what should be. And if you're in a family or have a family, you know this, right? Or in, even in your relationships with your roommates, probably, you know this. Reality versus what should be. Because so many times we look at the teachings of Scripture when it comes to loving each other and selflessness and, and the things we're called to and the commitment we're called to and the honor we're called to. And, and you're like, man, that's just not the reality of my life. The reality of my life is, man, I'm going through a brutal divorce or I'm in the first year of marriage and it's so much harder than I ever thought it would be. I, I joke around with our pastors because we do premarital counseling and stuff, which is valuable. Um, but I'm often like, we need to start premarital counseling and then continue it for like six months after the wedding. Because before you get married, you're just in love. It's like, oh, we won't struggle with any of that stuff, right? <laughs> and then six months in, you're like, what did I do? I have to live with this person who does not pick up their socks. That's my deal. I'm good at some other things that guys are usually bad at, but I pick up, I don't pick up my socks. So, um, so there's this, there's this tension between reality versus what should be. It's much harder, right? Um, you, you just wish you, you, you wanted to have kids, but you're having, you, you can't. You're having trouble, right? Or you've got kids and you thought it would be amazing, but one of them's just really off the rails. It's just so much more difficult. Or, or you're in this whole spiritual life alone. You've got a husband or a wife that refuses to cooperate with you, to, go, to even go to church with you maybe, that just won't engage spiritually, maybe isn't a believer. 
Or some of you, uh, you know, the reality is actually you're, you're in a really great place right now, but you wonder like when the other shoe's going to drop, right? How long can this last? And here, here's the tension. In culture, we have the, um, we have the, uh, the tendency to look at reality versus what should be. And in, because our lives don't match up, because we see, man, the reality of my family, because it seems like everybody's family has these kinds of struggles, um, we lower the, the scriptural gauge on what should be to make ourselves feel better. And here's the tension. Even though culture says a dysfunctional uh, family is normal and it seems so common and everybody seems to be struggling and my experience isn't what should be, here's what I bet I know about each one of you is, is for your kids or for your grandkids, you want something different. You want something better. I'm just telling you, nobody I've ever talked to that's gone through a brutal divorce prays or wishes that on their children, right? They may see God's grace at the end of it, but you, you, don't, you, don't, you don't hope for that. No one that's a single parent, and if you're here and you're a single parent, I have a world of respect for you. You're, you're like almost superhuman at times when I watch some of the ways you, you single parents um, just love your kids. But, but you don't hope for that or wish that for your children, right? You, have, you understand you want something better for that than, than that, don't you? And so we all kind of know intrinsically that there's this tension between reality and what should be. And in the Gospels, here, here's what you see. You see something when it comes to Jesus, and he so often does this, and he often highlights this, this tension between reality and what should be. And what you see with Jesus is he consistently leads people towards what seems like an unattainable should be, and yet he does not condemn them when they, when they fall short. Last week, I, I mentioned... Uh, you know, the story of grace and truth and the woman that's caught in, in adultery, right? And Jesus' words to her, which, by the way, where was the dude, right? He wasn't there. Exposes the hypocrisy of the whole situation. But he looks at this woman and, and he says, I don't condemn you, but go and sin no more. He didn't lower what should be, what was ideal. He offered grace and forgiveness when it wasn't attained. Uh, when the Pharisees tried to trick Jesus about divorce, and there were different competing thoughts on this in the day, and, and he, they basically said, can a man divorce his wife for any reason? Because they had a practice in, in this culture, basically, where a man could just say, I divorce you three times and send his wife away. And that was a done deal. The wife was kind of stuck she didn't have the same options. And Jesus said, hey, I know Moses uh, um, you know, made provision for this, but I'm just telling you from the beginning of creation, that's not the way that God intended it. He made them male and female. And he called them to commitment, a lifelong commitment. And I know that's difficult because in a room this size, there's many that have, that have been through a painful, brutal Divorce, But Jesus didn't lower what should be the standard. But he offered grace. He didn't condemn when we fall short. Jesus embodies the fullness of grace and truth. 
100% grace, 100% truth. That's what you see at the beginning of the book of John. We looked at that uh, a couple months ago before the summer when we preached through the first 18 verses. Grace and truth. And so the question is, are we willing to embrace a standard for our relationships um, that so many of us have fallen short of or will fall short of? Or are we going to try to redefine the conversation down till we just kind of feel good about where we are? And are we willing to, to really point our children and raise and disciple our children towards a destination that maybe we didn't attain to, we didn't reach, that we fell short of, but because we want them to follow Jesus on a, on, on a deeper level than even we did? Are we willing to say, hey, run after him. This is the truth. I want to point you towards that. Grace and truth. That's really the context of many of the things we're going to be talking about for the rest of our series. And so for the rest of our our time here that we have today, I want to look at just one of uh, those four different teachings, five different teachings, and and just really ask... um, I want to ask one question that I think, I want to give you one question to ask this week and hopefully going forward, that I think if, if you really began to ask it in your relationships, wherever your context, this is much bigger than the family, but this is particularly applicable to your family relationships. If you would ask this one question, I think it would change so many dynamics in your life. And so I thought we'd start out by just looking at one of these statements and um, I thought I might chicken out and do this one next week when all the women are up at ladies' camp. But I thought, nah. And so which one of these is, can you put that list up? Which one of these is the most controversial, the most politically incorrect, the ones that we like the least, ladies? Yes, the ladies know the answer to this one. <laughs> And the men are just like silent because you know better, right? Which is a good thing. I'll get to that in just a second. Here you go. So yeah, and I'm going to switch over to the passage in Ephesians that talks about this. Ephesians 5.22 says this, Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. Now, as a pastor, um, these, is the, these are the ver- verses that you're terrified to share and, you know, keep you awake at night because you don't want a whole room full of ladies angry at you. So I just want to say, ladies, I have your back, okay? Because I want to point out to the, all the men in the room, um, who is this verse addressed to, men? Come on. Somebody? Wives, exactly. And so I just would, there's lots of verses addressed to you. And so I would suggest that you pay more attention to the verses that are addressed to you and work on living those out, right? And let the ladies kind of worry about their own stuff, okay? So I'll just say that. But he lays out this verse, wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as you do to the Lord. And then we don't have time to to read through the whole passage and dig into it today, but he goes on to lay out a pattern of leadership in the marriage and home relationship, which ultimately um, reflects Christ's relationship to his church and a love that God gave himself, Christ gave himself up for her, this self-sacrificing love, which is the model of leadership in scripture, both in marriage and just in leadership in general. Christ is the example, right? And so he goes on to lay it out. 
And the reason I wanted to spend some time on, on, on this subject is because I want to help you understand that this verse is a specific application given to women of a mandate, or given to wives specifically, rather, as a mandate that's given to all of us that in the context of relationships. And see, what you have to understand is Peter and Paul were drawing from the teachings of Jesus and applying them to family. And Jesus, when he talked about loving one another and that being the mark of his disciples, um, I just want to show you what brings us to there. Because oftentimes we pull verses out of context and, and that's not the right way to interpret scripture. And so this whole passage starts out this way. This is our, the command to every follower of Jesus. It says, follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children children and walk in the way of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God and so everything that flows out of this is an application of walking in the way of love in the way of Jesus and so Paul sees in the model of Jesus that Jesus used his power and his authority to serve sacrificially. And that's exactly what we find actually in the verse right before verse 22 that we just looked at. Verse 21 sets the context for this whole passage and for the way we relate to each other. And here's how it says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And so everything you see following is going to be this concept that Paul um, develops of mutual submission, that we actually submit to each other in our relationships out of reverence for Christ. And then this is how it applies. Wives, here's a specific application. Men, husbands, here's a specific application. Your, your big deal. Love your wives be, be tender, compassionate. This is going to be a little more difficult for you. Wives, be respectful. This is an application. Pay, children, obey your parents because that doesn't come naturally or easy. Honor them, right? These are very countercultural things. They don't come natural. They're not part of our innate human nature that desires to put ourself at the center of the conversation. And so he lays it out. Everything that follows is coming out of this verse. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And everything that follows is an application of this principle. It's a powerful principle, this principle of mutual submission. It should, it should be something that characterizes families who follow Jesus. Mutual submission says this, I am here for you. And regardless of your place in the family or, you know, authority or anything, I'm going to leverage whatever I have. I'm going to take whatever I have and my power, my influence, my resources, and I'm going to use them on your behalf for your benefit. I am here for you. That's the assumption of mutual submission, that you are not less valuable than me. And while our responsibilities and our roles different, maybe a little bit different, nobody is of less value. In fact, another spot, revolutionary teaching in the first century, Paul says in Christ, there's no uh, male or female or Jew or Greek or slave or free. We're all one. The cross, the gospel is the great equalizer. When it comes to our value, we have different roles. But when it comes to our value, we stand on an equal footing and platform. Before Jesus, 
before the cross. And so what I want to give you is just one, what I think is an incredibly practical question that you can help ask and help to put this concept of mutual submission into practice. And I didn't make it up. I heard it from a famous author, speaker. And I don't think he made it up either because it's too easy. But it's so powerful if we begin to ask it. It's so simple. It's powerful when it comes to the context of family, when it comes to the context of relationships. And here's the the question that mutual submission asks in the context of relationships. It asks, how can I help you? How can I help? Pretty basic, pretty simple, right? Let me tell you, if you begin to ask this question in the context of your household on a regular basis, I believe it will completely change the dynamic of your relationships. How can I help? What can I do for you? See, the beauty of this question is it's an offer for you to bring what God has given you and use it to the benefit of someone else that may not have what you have It's an offer actually to come under or submit to the burden that someone else is carrying. When Mutual submission. You come under or you submit to the burden that someone else is carrying and say, how can I come alongside you and and help you? You know, if... if, uh, If you've been through a tough time, you know, uh, something that's very um, helpful and very nice. One of our staff members, his mom, um, was suffering from a a terrible illness. And in her life, one of the most helpful things was just for somebody to ask, what do you really need? Have you noticed how nice it is when somebody actually asks, how can I be helpful in this situation? Instead of just assuming they know. How can I help you? How can I help? says we're here for you right I'm here for you now young people in the room um, this is an incredible question if you go in if you begin to ask this to your parents I think it'll actually absolutely like well first it'll shock them right especially you for especially if they have their friends over just walk in you know say hey how can I help you And, and their friends will think they're like you know the Jedi ninjas of parenting so you'll You'll score some serious points. I'm just telling you. Husbands. What if you began asking this to your wife? In the midst of the stress of everything going on in life, in the craziness, what if you began to seriously ask this of your wife? What if when you come home, you ask this of your wife? Wives. What if you ask this of your husband? How can I help? Maybe he's carrying a significant load and a significant burden, and you just ask this. And, and honestly, he'll probably just grunt. <laughs> right, guys? Because it takes us a little while to figure it out, doesn't it? But I think it'll make a huge difference in your relationships and the way you relate to each other. Parents, I, what if you ask it of your kids? So many times the parenting relationship just turns into like, cop and policeman, right? And that changes over time as your kids grow and and you become more of a coach in their life and a mentor in their life and hopefully ultimately a friend in their life, right? But what if when your kids are young, you actually enter into the thing that they're doing and say, how can I help? Show some interest in what they're interested in. And I know it's hard, isn't it? Because you're like, that is just weird. How can I help? How can I help? 
roommates. Imagine how it might shift the dynamic in, in your relationships if you just ask this question, how can I help? Oh, yeah, but she, she doesn't put the trash out, I, you know, all this. How can I help? Do you know why we're afraid to ask this question? And there's some of you that do an amazing job of it. But you know why, for those that maybe don't, we're afraid to ask this question? We're, we're afraid that something will be demanded of us that we do not want to give, right? Or we're afraid somebody else will take advantage of us. That's why Paul starts out this whole section by saying we submit to one another out of what? Reverence for who? Christ, not for each other. Because each other doesn't often or always deserve reverence, right? Uh Uh-huh. Out of reverence for Christ. Because of what Jesus did for us. And it's supposed to so impact the way that we relate to each other in our families and in our closest relationships that it transforms them. That it brings a selflessness into our relationships. This is why Paul writes in Romans chapter 5 verse 6. He makes this observation. He says, for while we were still helpless... Couldn't help ourselves. Another passage, we were dead in our transgressions and sins. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. That's what he did. The father looked down at a broken world, and Jesus asked, what can I do to help, right? And Jesus knew it would cost him everything, and he said, yes, I will give it. In order to save you and me. This is the gospel. This little phrase, it's the gospel. Jesus looked down. Jesus said, the father said, how can I help? How can I be involved? How can I save? How can I rescue? How can I help? And if you want a great family, but there's something in you that refuses to ask this question, um, selflessness is like the secret sauce to amazing families. If you want a happy family, you know this, right? Some of the most selfless people you know are also the happiest people you know. And if you're withholding yourself because you're not willing to ask this question, if if you're not willing to enter into this mutual submission, you think the whole thing's about you, your heart attitude, and you wouldn't say it out loud, but the way that it it represents itself in your life and your family is this this thing's about me. I'm the king of the castle. I'm the the queen of the, um, I don't know, the manor? Of the abbey, that would be it, right? Downtown Abbey. See, I've watched it. I'm not uncultured. <laughs> but if you're not, if you're, if you're withholding yourself in a relationship, guess what? You are actually withholding yourself from the joy and the happiness that God wants you to experience in that relationship because joy and happiness comes from selflessness. Amen. And so ask it. Ask this question. How can I help? This is your homework this week, should you choose to accept. 
I would like you every day to ask this question. How can I help? See how it begins to make a difference in those relationships closest to you. Now, before we close, um, and if you're wondering, like, yeah, but, but what, what about leadership? Like, have you ever been in a relationship where, like, nobody makes decisions and it's always just like, no, for you, you first, you first, you first. It's just annoying, right? What about leadership? You're like a type A person. We'll never get anything done. It's just always, how can I help? How can I help? No, no, you first, right? Come on, I know you're out there. I just want to close with this. If you lead in any capacity, I mean, if you lead in your family, if you lead your children, if you lead, you know, you're a leader in your group of friends, if, if you are a leader among your siblings, if you have any level of authority in your life, here's our model. And this is one of the most dramatic scenes out of the gospel. It's at the Last Supper. And, and here's, here's how it starts. In John 13, 3, it says, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power. How much authority is that? A lot. A lot of power. A lot of authority. A lot of leadership. And that he had come from God and was returning to God. So now get this, because this is so counterintuitive. So he knew he had all the power all the authority. So, verse 4, so, because of that, he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. And they're looking at him like, what is he doing? And he picks up the basin and the towel and begins to do a task that not even the most menial person in the culture could be forced to do. And he washes their feet. And then he goes out of that room to suffer and die and give his life for them and for everyone who would believe on his name and for the sins of of the world. When he finished washing their feet, here's what he said, I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. This is the model, guys. This is the model for family. This is the model for leadership. This is the model for how we relate to each other. And how we relate to those closest to us. So let me just ask you, what are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? Jesus says, very truly I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. And here's what I know about every one of you in the room. You would never say or probably think I'm greater than Jesus. And yet sometimes our actions communicate and betray our hearts. Verse 17, now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. And you know, this term of blessing, when you understand it from a Hebrew context, it's not like, you know, God bless you after you sneeze or 
kind of what we might think of. It actually embodies happiness, joy, like the fullness of blessing. Do you want to be happy in your relationships? Follow the example of our Savior who selflessly gave of himself. Ask this question regularly. And I think it will make a phenomenal difference in the way your family relates to each other and in your level of joy and peace and happiness and fulfillment in life. Would you stand? And I'm going to close in prayer. And uh, as, I, as I pray, if there's anyone in the room that's part of our prayer ministry team, I'd love to have you come up over here. And if anyone needs prayer, please don't leave here without getting prayer. Maybe there's a relationship you just need some prayer over in your life. And so um, some of our staff or the ministry team, just go ahead and, and come on up. I just want to pray a blessing over you. Lord, thank you so much for preserving this amazing text and your word that can make such a difference in our lives, Lord. And for giving us such an incredible model. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for offering salvation to those that haven't embraced you yet, Lord, here today. May they do that if they have not and give their lives to you. Thank you for pointing the way and being the model for us. And so, Lord, I just pray over relationships uh, maybe that are broken right now. Maybe that, that just need your grace. And I ask that you would shift and change hearts and move. In the name of Jesus, amen.